0: Luke 9, 18 to 27. And before we look at this together, let me just briefly pray for us for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we do thank you for every word you have breathed out. We know that the words that you have spoken are spirit and life. We know that we need all of those comfortable portions of your word, and we we know that we need all those uncomfortable portions. We need you to do A great work in our hearts and our minds that you would be transforming us by your grace, that you would be building us up in Christ, that you would teach us, Lord, what it is that you want for us, and that you would be making us into the men and the women and the boys and girls that you have redeemed us to be in Christ. And so we pray that we would grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus, our union with him, and all that you would have for us in him. And so, our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes among us. Through the preaching of your word, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're looking together at Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. And as Luke has been tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and most recently he has been focusing on Jesus' commissioning of the twelve, his sort of uh, inner workings and initial commissioning with that apostolic band that he chose and he is just beginning to send them out and he is revealing more of the mysteries of the kingdom of God to them as they are going to be extensions of his ministry. We now read in verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I'm not sure if you are aware of the name Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian missionary, uh, converted Jew from Romania. He was born in 1909. He was converted in 1938 under the evangelistic ministry of a local carpenter who shared the gospel with him, Wormbrand and his wife would go on to be very vocal and very fruitful missionaries in Romania up to the point where the Romanian government had been taken over by communism. And as the Romanian government began imposing communism on the church and dominating control over the Christian church, uh, Richard Wormbrand and his wife were some of the only people that actually opposed Uh, what was happening in Romania. In 1948, he and his wife were both locked up in prison. She was locked up for three years. She was then let go and told that he had died in prison. He would spend 16 years in Romanian prison. He'd be beaten horrifically and would show the scars when he was finally released. A group of Christians from Norway uh, provided amnesty for him in 1964. And Richard wormbrand would go on to found what we know as the Voice of the Martyrs. He was the founder and the president of the Voice of the Martyrs, and he would go all over the world. He would talk about the sufferings that he had endured. There's a book about him called Tortured for Christ, um, and he would talk about what it was that carried him through and enabled him to endure all that he endured uh, without compromising or forsaking Christ even under the severe uh, persecution he endured. At one point, he, um, he showed people the scars on his lower body, and he said, I'm not going to show you anymore because I don't think you can bear them. Um, th- these are real Christians. Um, these are not um, fake pretend Christians. Uh, Richard Wormbrand in Tortured for Christ said, I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. A striking statement. I have found jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Now, I tell you that story this morning because as we come to look at uh, Jesus' further instruction to the disciples, we come to that very important section where Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, is going to tell the disciples explicitly what he was going to have to do. Up to this point, Jesus had alluded to what he had come to do. He had told them in sort of bare nucleus form what he had come to do. He had sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. He had given them the message to proclaim, but he had not told them explicitly what he had come to do and what redemption would cost him. And then by way of association, what following him in his sufferings would cost the disciples of Jesus. What what are those demands of Christian discipleship? Now, the passage that we are coming to this morning is oftentimes uh, shorthanded, the confession at Caesarea Philippi, because in Matthew 16, Uh, We are told that it is as Jesus brings his disciples into Caesarea Philippi and into that very uh, luxurious region of Israel, that it is there that he elicits the confession from them and from Peter specifically that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then all of the subsequent interactions with them. Luke is going to give us a much more bullet version of the accounts that you find in Matthew and also in Mark's gospel. And there is some period of time that has lapsed between verse 17 and verse 18 and the subsequent passages that happen here because Matthew gives us a huge section between chapter 14 and the confession in chapter 16 that Luke doesn't give us. Luke is giving us just the very bare bones of that confession and everything attached to it. This morning, we're going to see just two things. We're going to consider, first of all, uh, the Christian confession of our mouths, and then we are going to consider, secondly, the Christian confession of our lives, the Christian confession of our mouths, which you'll find there in verses 18 through 20, and then the Christian confession of our lives attached to the subsequent verses, especially verses 23 Through 27. We'll notice that Luke tells us now it happened that he was praying alone. This is one of those places, you know, unbelievers love to find a verse like verse 18 and they love to try to trap you with it um, because they hate Jesus. And and so anything they can do to try to trick you uh, into thinking there are contradictions in the Bible. Um, I love the way Derek Thomas always says this. He says, Don't think that the biblical authors were so dumb and stupid that they missed the contradiction, the seeming contradiction, but you saw it. So don't be so dumb and stupid as to think Luke doesn't know what he's writing, but you do. Now, Luke says here, it happened as he was praying alone, he said to the disciples. It's actually not a super difficult verse to figure out uh, an explanation about. Jesus was often withdrawing, wasn't he, into the... the." Um, into the gardens and into the mountainsides to pray with his disciples. And as the gospel writers tell us, as his pattern was, he would take the disciples as he did into the garden of Gethsemane. And then sometimes he would withdraw from them, a stone's throw away from them. He's praying alone, but he's with them. He finishes praying. He now turns to them. The question is, why does Luke even mention this? Why why even mention this? I mean, Luke has thrown us a curveball here for unbelieving scholars to try to throw you off and, and yet Luke is, I think, highlighting for us, and Howard Marshall, the great British scholar, puts it so well that Jesus is here praying for the revelation that Peter is about to receive and confess in the confession of faith that Jesus is going to elicit from him. Now that teaches us the very valuable lesson that we should be praying before everything, We should be praying a whole lot more before we meet with people, before we have interactions, before meetings, before any kind of events, before we go to work in the morning, when we take our children to school, before we drop them off, we should be praying. Jesus is teaching that pattern of preemptive prayer for God's work in forthcoming situations. Um, Jesus is no doubt pleading with his father to give his disciples a fuller revelation of himself which is exactly what's going to happen in the subsequent verses. Because Jesus knows that unless the Father gives that revelation, it will be in vain. Now we're going to see that highlighted in a pretty substantial way because when Jesus does ask that question to the disciples, who do people say that I am, you're going to see that people have many mistaken notions about who Jesus is. John Calvin, when he uh, meditates on that, Remember, the people say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the old prophets. Those are all sort of commendations. These are people that think well of Jesus. These are are people who um, are not out to get Jesus. These are people that admire Jesus in society. These are people that might even have Bible verses uh, crocheted on their walls, and yet they don't know who Jesus is in a saving way. John Calvin, about that verse in passing, says the human mind is unable of itself to understand what is right or true. But even out of true principles, it coins errors. I like that illustration. It makes coins of errors out of its own mind. When men are left to themselves, they can never... Come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And so Jesus is here and he's praying. And the disciples are with him, verse 18. And he now turns to them. And as he is about to draw out this confession of faith from them, he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, let's just get this on the table right now. Jesus isn't lacking any knowledge. Jesus doesn't have a complex where he really just needs to know what people are thinking about him. We do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He is not asking the disciples out of any sense of ignorance in himself about who he is. He is drawing out of them the confession that the Christian church will make through all of human history, and he will contrast it with what the natural man can come up with in their best as over against what God must reveal by divine revelation. Remember, uh, we will see that contrast in full. In the other Gospels, and here in very summary form, notice that they very quickly tell Jesus, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the old prophets has risen. Now, remember, Herod had killed John the Baptist, but Herod was hearing people saying that this person going around to Israel doing these mighty works and teaching was John raised from the dead, and he was even willing to entertain, maybe that's who it is. And the people thought this must be John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the old prophets raised from the dead. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. They are attaching the greatest possible commendation on Jesus that anyone could attach on anyone. If someone foolishly mistook you or me for being one of the Old Testament prophets raised from the dead, that's a major, major upgrade in our reputations. That's a major upgrade from wherever we are right now, wherever you are on the social and religious scale of things, it's way down here below Jeremiah. And definitely John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest of those born among women up to that point. Uh, John Skilton, the New Testament professor at Westminster Seminary for so long, uh, has a chapter on the confession of faith that. Caesarea Philippi, in which he says, uh, great commendations though these may be, they were infinitely wrong and infinitely below what Jesus actually deserved to be said about him because he's God. Now don't, don't miss that. This is the best that men can do when they see Jesus, hear Jesus, have some kind of affinity for Jesus, for the teaching of Christ, they're, they, you know, they, they've grown up in the church maybe, they have respect for this religious leader. Jesus is God, and to say anything less than him is infinitely below who he is, and it's to dishonor him. These are actually dishonorable things to say about Jesus. Uh, these were Christ's servants. Uh, he is God overall, the eternal son. And notice that Jesus then turns to the disciples, and having prayed, no doubt, for this revelation, he now says to them, but who do you say that I am? You see what Jesus is doing. He is teaching them, those things are wrong. Now what do you say? And for the first time, in the clearest way in the gospel, the disciples under the sort of functional representation of Peter, not in a papal kind of way, just as a chief among elders by age, no doubt, Peter says, and it's always Peter talking, Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Now, to us, and as I think about that, there's something we kind of lose about that in our day because you, maybe, I certainly did, grew up in the church where your whole life, You've heard about Christ your whole life. I mean, we have a holiday in our society with his name in it. So what's the big deal? Christ. Well, the big deal is that from all of human history, from the very foundations of the world, from the fall of Adam, men were waiting for an anointed king who would be the redeemer. And every king in Israel and every prophet in Israel and every priest in Israel were all little messiahs. Mashiach, they were little anointed ones that God had set apart in Old Covenant history. Everything you read from Genesis to Malachi, all of those figures that God used in instrumental ways in Israel's history were were little typical preludes of the Messiah. There would be a Christ that would come. Now, the unbelieving Jews had misplaced notions about this. Some of them believed that the Christ would be a priest. Some believed that he would be a king. Some believed there were two Christ. Some had very mixed motions. They didn't understand, but very clearly the Bible taught that there would be one Christ, one anointed one, one Messiah, one Redeemer, one Savior who would be God over all, who would come in the flesh, who would dwell among his people, who would redeem his people by an outstretched hand and a mighty arm and would save his people from their sins. Remember, Luke already gives us a prelude to Jesus' identity when Simeon, at the beginning of this gospel in chapter 2, that aged saint and the spirit has revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ, Luke says. Um, His whole life was waiting for Christ. Um, I love the way the writer of Hebrews captures this in that great faith chapter in chapter 11 and He's talking about what's motivating Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and uh, Sarah and uh, all of the patriarchs and then what was motivating Moses. And when he comes to Moses, he says in, in uh, chapter 11, 25, Hebrews eleven twenty five 25, he said, Moses by faith refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with Christ than the passing pleasures of sin. So... Moses was looking forward to the Christ. If anybody was saved in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to him. They were trusting in the promised Christ. And here he is, and he's with his disciples, and they they don't have fully developed, proper ideas about who he is. They don't yet know exactly who Jesus is. Remember when they're on the boat and he silences the wind and the waves, and, and he has power over nature, and they're like, who can this be? And they still sort of don't get it. They have very hazy ideas, just like you may have hazy ideas about who Jesus is. Um, And many around us have hazy ideas about who he is. And so Jesus is bringing them along. and, And now, finally, Peter has made that great confession and so great a confession that when Jesus in Matthew's gospel responds to him, he says, blessed are you Simon, son of Jennifer flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven and you are Peter. And on this rock, this confession that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church. This is the confession. He is the foundation of the church. There is no Christian church apart from Jesus Christ, the Jesus of scripture. Now, That means that anyone who is saved by him will necessarily be those that confess him. Um, John Calvin again says about this confession, and I, I really love this, very profound, very simple. He says, the confession is short, but it embraces all that is contained in our salvation. For the designation Christ, the anointed, includes an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting priesthood to reconcile us to God by expiating our sins through his sacrifice to obtain for us a perfect righteousness and having received us under his protection to uphold and supply and enrich us with every blessing. He's saying in this short little confession is all of the truth about what this one will do for the salvation of his people. Now, you may remember that in the other Gospels, um, Peter will very impulsively respond to what Jesus next tells them uh, by saying, far be it from you, Lord, you'll never suffer. So even in the confession that Peter makes by supernatural revelation from God, there's still an inadequate understanding about what Jesus has to do in fulfilling the work as the Christ. So notice that uh, we're told in verse 21, uh, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, uh, scholars have called this the messianic secret or the messianic mystery or the messianic self-concealment. There have been terms used for what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes when you're reading the gospels, you'll come across these statements where Jesus is like, "Don't tell anybody." And you're utterly confused. You're thinking, "What do you what do you mean? You just sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. You've just sent them on mission and now you're like, "Don't tell anybody." Well, there's only really one or two explanations that we can conclude, and I think the one that is most favorable Uh, here is that there is a sense where there uh, are triumphalistic expectations in the hearts and the minds of the disciples that we are with the Christ. We're with the long-awaited King. We're with the one that brings the kingdom of God. We are here chosen by him to be his intimate companions and he's revealed himself to us and he's bringing his kingdom and we are going to be with him and it's going to be triumph. It's going to be great. It's going to be like a Trump rally. Yes, you can laugh at that. It's going to be huge. Everybody's going to fly in and he's going to like parachute into the middle of the stadium. And say some things he probably shouldn't even say. And it's nothing like that. And Jesus knows that there's a very real danger that they're going to go out and they're going to proclaim him inappropriately in a triumphalistic sense, and they don't really yet understand what the confession of faith that they've just made entails. Now, notice what he does. Directly on the heels of that self-concealment, <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, please understand this. If you gave up everything to follow a guy you had never met before, you gave up your dad's fishing industry. You gave it up. You gave up lucrative businesses. You left it all to follow a carpenter's son that you didn't know growing up. And he's, he's revealing things and doing things that no one else has ever said or done. It's worth it. No one's like him. No one ever spoke like him. Clearly, there is no one like him. People think he's a dead prophet risen from the dead. So it's worth it, but Jesus wants them to understand, do you really understand what's coming? Um, There is an offense to the cross. There is an offense to what Jesus has to do, and that means when we confess faith in Christ, there is a necessary offense that is built into it because there is shame and ignominy and disgrace in a crucified redeemer. There's nothing glorious about the cross. There's nothing beautiful, I say it will say. There's no beauty about it that we should behold him and desire him. His, his visage was marred more than any man. The Christ that you confess, if you're a Christian, he was bloodied and beaten and suffered more severely than anyone has ever suffered. That's what we confess. That's part and parcel of a Christian confession is I believe that God became man and was beaten and mocked and his form was marred more than any man because of my sin. Now, I love that line. I don't love it, but I love it because it's realignment. It was my sin that nailed him there. If you can sing that, without having some kind of sober realization about the gravity of our sin, there is something severely wrong with us. It was my sin that nailed him there. He came to suffer. The king came to suffer. Um, he came to be rejected. Don't miss this. We need to hear this. We need to hear about the disgrace of the cross. Um, the Apostle Paul, right, will pick up on this in, 1 Corinthians 1, and it'll say, look, don't, don't fool yourselves into thinking that you can make the cross more sophisticated or, or more worldly wise in acceptance, that that Christ crucified is, is foolishness to men. It's a base thing. It's dishonorable to the world. The world hates it. It's, a, it's an offense to the flesh. It's an offense to our pride. It says you can't do anything For your salvation, he has to suffer under the wrath of God, under the powers of darkness. Because of our sin, he has to bear the heavy load. The sword of justice has to fall on him. He has to have his lifeblood poured out on the cross for our redemption. And yet, notice that as Jesus is instructing, the disciples about what the confession of our mouths about him being the Christ really is notice he moves on from suffering and rejection at the hands of the religious leaders. Those, by the way, that makes it even more of an affront because if you live in a day when the church, and I want you to think about this, think about if the greater part of the church in North America started proclaiming a false gospel, um, and there are a minority little group of people holding to the true gospel, which actually is probably not further from the truth than what things really are in some ways, and are heading more rapidly. Um, there is a heightened sense in which we're pulling back, because not just the world, but the church, the religious leaders are rejecting him. I mean, the enormity of the peer pressure not to follow a suffering savior, it's enormous. All of the big gurus on television and on the internet that you read and listen to, they're all rejecting him. That's what it would have been like in Israel. Here's this little apostolic band, and he says, Look, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be killed and rejected and suffer at the hands of the elders, the pastors, the chief priests, the scribes. But then on the third day I'm gonna rise. It's a beautiful picture. There is triumph in the Christ that we follow, and it's in the resurrection. There's glory in the resurrection. Uh, There's restoration and newness in the resurrection. It's not just the offense of the cross that we proclaim. It's the victory of the resurrection. When he steps out of the tomb on the third day, he steps out. This is why I hate celebrating Easter once a year. We should be thinking about the resurrection of Jesus every day of our life. There's victory. There's glory after the suffering. There is There is the securing and attaining of everything. Jesus is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. Right now, the Christ that we confess, the Christ who suffered for us, ever lives at the right hand of the Father. He's going to show that to his disciples when he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain at the Transfiguration in just a few hours. He's going to show them the brightness of his glory, a prelude to the resurrection glory. And he's going to say, It's suffering and it's glory. John Calvin, again, when he notes this, he says ministers must be careful to always follow the ignominy of the cross with the glory of the resurrection. It's always those two working in tandem. We serve a crucified Savior. We serve a risen Savior. There's no crown without the cross, but we don't only have a cross. We have a crown awaiting us. And Jesus is saying In the Lord Jesus, he's saying in me are all these things because I am the Christ. And so when you confess the Christ with your mouth, you are confessing those things as the epicenter of Christianity. You know, I want to say this this morning. There are so many alternative messages being bandied about on the Internet today by ministers in every denomination under heaven, including our own, that will lead you away from this as the central message don't you dare for a second succumb to it with a self-righteous heart. Because what Jesus is saying is, I came to suffer for sinners. You know what he's saying in that? This is beautiful. Geoffrey Thomas, the Welsh minister, says, what Jesus is really saying here is that there is no one so sinful that he cannot have Christ, and there is no one so good that he does not need Christ. That's what Jesus is saying in confessing what he came to do. There is no one so evil that he or she cannot have Christ if they will turn to him. And there is no one so good that does not need Christ. He came to suffer. He came to atone for the sins of his people. He came to conquer death. He came to overthrow the evil one. He came by his sufferings and his resurrection to accomplish everything necessary for our salvation. Now notice, if that were enough, and it's not, for our confession, Jesus would have stopped here and... They would have just skipped on their merry way. And we would have been like, yay, Jesus, you can do it. You can suffer. But remember, Simon Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. So in Matthew's gospel, in between verse 22 of Luke 9 and verse 23 of Luke 9, there is Peter rebuking Jesus saying, you will never suffer, Lord. This is beneath you. You are above all suffering. You are the Christ. We're going to triumph. And so Jesus now says there is a confession of our life that must accompany the confession of our mouths. If we truly understand what he's saying, and Jesus says here, I am going to suffer. And if you are going to be my disciples, you also are going to suffer. He is not saying that our sufferings are atoning sufferings. Um, There have been many in the history of the church that have made the mistake of trying to convince people that somehow by your deprivation or denying yourself of certain things or living some sort of monastic life down in some cave where people let food down to you while you flog yourself, you are going to atone for your sufferings. You will not ever atone for one of your sins ever by your suffering, not one, not all the tears or prayers, none of it can atone for your sins. Um, Our repentance doesn't atone for our sins. Our faith doesn't atone for our sins. Our going to church on a regular basis to worship God doesn't atone for our sins. Witnessing does not atone for your sins. Giving money does not atone for your sins. Now, Jesus is gonna call you to something far greater than just reducing your Christian life down to one or several of those things. Notice what he does. He says in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, Jesus is disarming that mistaken notion the disciples have that his kingdom is going to just be more and more and more triumphant that somehow after maybe he suffers a little bit maybe then the kingdom will just grow and grow and grow and they'll be at the top and everything will be great and then worldwide domination and the kingdom of God in every corner of the earth and everybody you walk around loves Jesus now and worships God and there's no more suffering and there's no more persecution. I want to say this this morning, we want that Christianity by nature in our hearts. Every one of us wants an easier Christianity. Do not be deceived. You know, I was preparing for this sermon. There is a part of me that doesn't like hearing these things. And I think you would be fooling yourself if you took an honest inventory of your life and said, no, I love hearing this. Deny yourself, lose your life, take up your cross every day, every day. Follow me and you're going to be persecuted and don't be ashamed of my words. Oh, I love that. That's great. The world around me hates Christianity. Most of the church is trying to soft-pedal it everywhere to make it more palatable to the natural man that won't ever believe. The best they can do is make Jesus John the Baptist. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, there's going to be a confession of your life, and it is going to be a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Isn't it interesting? The disciples needed clarity, about who Jesus was in the first part of these verses, and now they need clarity about who they are being redeemed and called to be. Um, Those are the two sides of the whole of Christianity. Here's Christ, his sacrifice, his self-denial, his emptying himself of everything but the divine nature, giving up the glories of heaven to suffer for us, to redeem us, results in the atonement for our sins and and salvation for our souls. And then are taking up the cross after him and following him and denying ourselves and, and living lives of self-sacrifice bear witness that we really have been redeemed by him. And we really are his followers. Um, Thomas Watson, the old Puritan used to say, if thou, my Lord could die for me, then I could die for thee. That's the essence of what Jesus is teaching. I'm dying for you, and then I will call you every day to die for me. Now, let's consider briefly what is meant here. Um, I think we would be mistaken if we adopted a view that the cross that Jesus is calling us to pick up is denying ourselves some certain things. You know, it's very popular right now at um, those seasons of Lent for churches. And I just heard the story the other day. A woman reached out to me and said, I feel like there's something wrong in my church because um, she said some of the elders are going around telling people that for Lent they're, they're giving up bourbon and they're just going to drink vodka. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not making this up. And I could even tell you the city this church is in. And she said, and some of the moms... And dads are walking around with rubber bands and every time they have a lustful thought, they're popping themselves with the rubber band and their little kids know why they're doing it. Okay, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not teaching that uh, the life of self-denial is I really want to lose some weight so I'm going to give up chocolate. It's not what Jesus is teaching. That is not a life of self-denial. Jesus is teaching us Uh, In the words of Eric Alexander, that self-denial is the axis. It's giving up the principle that my life is the axis and that I will give up my life and all that it means for me to live for me in order to live for Christ. And that means what will motivate me, what will animate me in the Christian life is Jesus and living for the glory of God. And it will be the whole of my life I will say, Lord, what is pleasing to you, not what is pleasing to me. Jesus will actually give two principles in this passage. Self-denial and self-sacrifice. Now I want you to think about this. Self-denial, he says here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and then self-sacrifice. And take up his cross and follow me. Um, Leon Morris made the great observation about the second of those statements. He said, the disciples had probably seen a man take up his cross. They knew what it meant. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. So if you saw somebody in your village carrying a cross with Roman soldiers around you. You knew he's not coming back. It's a one-way journey. How could Richard Womberg suffer the way he did? Wombrand suffered the way he did. He suffered the way he did because he took up his cross and he was ready to follow the Christ who suffered for him. How could the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have been persecuted for the gospel that he has written about and his ministry has made known to the world, how can they have done that? And here's the bigger question. How can the likes of you or me... Do that. Because at the end of the day, it's super easy to sit back and say, I really love the idea of voice voicing the martyrs. Now, I was thinking about this and I thought something in my mind triggered John Bunyan's caricature of talkative. Talkative is that figure who's on the road with Christian traveling and faithful comes along and they're all conversing and Talkative's like, yeah, we can talk about theology all day long. Let's talk about this and that. Let's talk about how we're saved by grace, not through works. Let's talk about this and this and this. And and Faithful's like, man, this guy's amazing. And Christian is like, eh, no, he's not that amazing, because when it comes time for him to live out the Christian life, he refuses to do so. He will not take up his cross and he will not follow the Savior that he professes. I want that to sink in this morning. Jesus is saying to us, if we are not living lives of self-denial and self-sacrifice, then we are not really his disciples. Now, the opposite of self-denial is self-pleasing. The opposite of self-sacrifice is self-preservation. It's very helpful to take the opposites and to say, Is my life characterized by self-denial and self-sacrifice, or is it characterized by self-pleasing and self-preservation? Jesus is not saying that true disciples will live a perfectly self-denying life. In fact, when he says, notice, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, he's saying this is a daily exercise that we have to get in our minds that we need to be doing every day. It's not enough to do it for this little period of time and then to quit because we don't like taking up the cross. It's not enough to start off on the Christian life, you know, but I did evangelistic ministry or I did this. I've known tons of people who served in reformed churches who did evangelism who are apostate today because they didn't want to take up a cross daily. They didn't want to die to themselves daily. Now, Notice Jesus gives this promise. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. So the question is, is it worth it? Jesus is directly addressing the question, is it really worth it? Is it going to be worth it for you not to live for money and success and status? Is it going to be worth denying yourself money and, and Security, for self-pleasure and self-preservation? Is it really worth it? I was having a conversation with someone recently and I realized everything that they said was about money. And I thought, huh, how their kids were going to go to college and scholarships, this and that, and I thought, not in a judgmental way, but it reveals a lot about what our life is revolving around. What is the axis of our life? What's the axis? What is the principle that motivates. And Jesus says it's absolutely worth it because you know what? You could save your life here. You could do everything you want to do. You could have everything you want. You could go everywhere you want. You could have every wish and dream fulfilled and you will lose your life. You will lose it. Every, by the way, Jesus is saying here, everybody loses their life. Don't miss that. Everybody loses their life. You either lose it now on a day-to-day basis and you keep it forever. Or you're gonna lose it on Judgment Day. There's only two options. Everybody's losing their life. Lose it now, you keep it forever. Try to keep it now, you're gonna lose it. It's sand, you can't hold on to it. It's not worth it. It is not worth whatever you are investing in not to be a self denying, self sacrificial follower of Jesus. It is not worth it. Notice what Jesus says. Let me show you how not worth it it is. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And I know, you say, I know, I got that. The whole world's not worth my soul. But the reality is our lives oftentimes betray a very different confession. I'm speaking about my life. I'm saying deal honestly with yourself. And ask yourself, what does my life Reveal, Because at the end of the day, the most valuable thing that you have is your soul. But if what you're running after is securing more investments and you're saying that's the most valuable thing, Jesus is saying you've prioritized the wrong thing. I came to redeem your soul and by patience possess your soul. Look, I'm going to give you an illustration of just uh, the reality of this. Notice at the end of this chapter, turn there to the end. Notice there's all these excuses. Jesus is going, verse 57 to 62. And I want us to really consider this. He's now going and he's, he's calling people to follow him. And people are coming up and they're like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm going to be so sold out for you, Jesus. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And Jesus is like, I'm homeless. And they're like, uh, that's not what we're signing up for. Like, can't we have... An upper-class Christianity? And then, notice, to another, Jesus said, follow me. And he's like, I got to go home and bury my dad. And Jesus seems harsh. He knows that that man's interest is not burying his dad. He knows that that man loves his family more, and he's not willing to leave his family to follow him. And then, notice, the third excuse. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me just go say bye to everybody at home. And he knows that person's not coming back. He knows. By the way, a lot of lip service, but not a lot of conformity to what it cost. Now, let me say this this morning. If you're hearing this and you're like, I do not like hearing this, guess what? You're in great company. The disciples hated hearing this. Remember, (laughs) Peter, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus says to him, the time is coming. When you were young, you did what you wanted to but a time's coming when another is gonna stretch out your hands and carry you where you don't wanna go. Don't, don't buy these super spiritual, saccharine, dripping Christians that say things like, My dream in life is to be a martyr for Jesus. That's ridiculous. Nobody wants to give their life for Jesus by nature. The disciples didn't want to hear this. And honestly, we don't want to hear it by nature, but there is nothing that we need to hear more than this this morning. We get one life, and we're either going to lose it to keep it, not meritoriously, but out of gratitude for what Christ has done, or we're going to try to keep it, and we're going to lose it. Everybody in this room is either going to lose their life and keep it, or try to keep it and lose it. There's no in-between. Now, I want to say this to you, and I've already highlighted this. Notice that Jesus ends this by saying, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father. But notice this, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. He is essentially saying to the disciples now, again, bringing it back to his glory, to his work, and he's saying, Uh, somebody that's willing to lose their lives, to take up the cross daily, to be crucified on a daily basis, to their own self-interest and self-preservation is someone who sees what Christ has done. That's the secret. None of us, I don't have this in me. You do not have this in you. You cannot walk out of here today determine I'm going to try better to deny myself more. The only way we get power to do this is by seeing what Christ said about himself, what he came to do, what he accomplished apart from us. And you know, when you look at the cross and you say, my Lord has died for me, your next response will be, and I can deny myself for him because he has rescued me and redeemed me and atoned for my sins, and it is worth it. And my soul was worth it for him to pour his life out on the cross. And he is worth it. And being with him forever is worth it. I want you to feel something of the weight of these demands this morning. It doesn't help any of us to sort of empty Christianity of of the weight of the, the call and cost of discipleship. But I want you to understand that at the end of the day, Jesus bore the heavier load. He carried his cross so that we can carry our cross. He marched to Calvary bearing the very thing literally he would be crucified on for our sins so that we can figuratively carry our cross every day. And that means that we need to expect hardship, and we need to expect difficulty, and we need to expect affliction. John Calvin actually says after you've passed through one season of affliction, expect more. The apostles learned this lesson. They said, through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom. I don't want you to leave this place today thinking it's going to be easy. It is not going to be easy. But you know what? When you're in glory and you haven't lost your life, you will see that it was worth it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that these are weighty words and... Words that our flesh often uh, does not want to hear, and yet words that are necessary. And Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you bore our burdens and carried our sorrows. We thank you that you were wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. We thank you that you cried out, it is finished, that we can add nothing to what you've done, and we can take nothing from it. And yet, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to come to terms with the fact that you call us to daily deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. We pray that you would give us the grace to do that. We pray, our God, that you would give us your spirit to help us do that. We pray that you would forgive us for the many ways that we have lived lives of self-pleasing and self-preservation. We pray that you would not let us be a people who are ashamed of you, Lord Jesus, or of your words, but people who rejoice and are jubilant, even in the midst of affliction. And so, Father, would you please work in us these precious truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We come this morning to the supper, and as we do so, we acknowledge...